Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Welcome to episode four of our Endocrine in the Time of COVID micro series. In today's episode, we conclude our discussion about health disparities with Dr. Joshua Joseph, Assistant Medical Professor at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. If you've not heard part one of this interview, I recommend you listen to that first, and you can find it at endocrine.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the episode. One of the big things that the Endocrine Society advocates for is NIH research funding. Can you talk a little bit about how important funding is to helping us address these disparities in the research sphere? Funding is absolutely critical. Without money, there is no mission. And without mission, there is no money. You have to have funding for the efforts in order for them to take hold and in order for them to be successful. And one of the interesting pieces was an article out of the NIH that showed that topic choice contributes to the lower rate of NIH awards among African-American and Black scientists. This was published in October 2019 in Science Advances. And they showed that despite efforts to promote diversity in the biomedical workforce, there remains a lower rate of funding of NIH R1 applications among African-American and Black scientists uh, relative to Caucasian scientists. And one of the pieces that was really notable from this article that is germane to our discussion today was that the African-American and Black applicants tended to propose research on topics with lower award rates. These topics really included research at the community and population level, as opposed to the more fundamental and mechanistic investigations, which tend to have higher award rates. So in that study, topic choice alone, topic choice including, once again, those community and population level factors, was responsible for about 20% of the funding gap after controlling for important variables, including the applicant's prior achievements. And so if we know that the pieces around community and population health are extremely important to our society, to the world, then we have to fund them in a way that is equitable. And if individuals are interested in kind of reading more about this, uh, there was an article by uh, Dr. Mercedes Carnathon called Disparities Research, Disparities Researchers, and Health Equity. In that article, she not only talks about some of the issues, but she actually proposes solutions. So that's an excellent article to go to for those who are more interested in this topic. Lastly, there was an article by Dr. Hannah Valentine, the Chief Officer for Scientific Workforce Diversity, at the NIH, as well as Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, that discussed trends over the last five years at the NIH. And so over the last five years, they've worked on a couple of initiatives that just had been pivotal. One is the National Research Mentoring Network, uh, which is a network that is designed to help young researchers like myself to get their careers off the ground and have appropriate mentoring, which we know mentoring is really one of the keys to success in research as well as the Build uh, Diversity Program Consortium. So these two initiatives uh, over the last five years are kind of discussed in this article, so you can go to it and read about those things. But notably, they looked at, after some of these efforts, what's happened with the R01 award rates 
And although the disparities are not eliminated, there has been some closure in that gap for uh, R01 awards among uh, Black and African-American principal investigators. And most importantly for our young investigators, the Black African-American principal investigators on K-award applications, these are the early career award applications, increased among uh, Black African and African-Americans by about 56% for the applications and 142% for the awards over the last five years. And they saw similar trends uh, for Hispanic and Latinx scientists uh, as well. So I think that the NIH efforts are working. They are improving things and that we will get to a place eventually where there are not um, disparities in funding, which will be pivotal as we think about the broad context of community and population health work across the United States. So far, we've talked about the clinical space when it comes to helping in the battle to eliminate health disparities. We've talked about the research space, but another big player in this is policymakers. So let's talk about policy for a moment. What do we need to help shift the needle again in a healthier direction? We really need policies that promote health and wellness. We need policies that promote access to care, economic equality, affordable housing, healthy food availability in schools and everywhere else. And when we speak about these policies, going back to our earlier conversation, Aaron, these are really policies that target those social determinants of health. And so some people think about it from that lens. Others think about it from the health in all policy lens. So when we think about policies, no matter what they are, what is their impact on health? You can think about this as if you're building a sidewalk in a community or you're extending sidewalks in communities, how does that policy impact health? If you have a policy that is taxing sugar-sweetened beverages, how does that policy impact health? So trying to have health at the center of all the policies at the federal, state, and local levels. And I think that that is one piece of it. Another piece of it is policy and advocacy work that impacts the ability to treat individuals for different disorders. I know that one of the spaces that the Endocrine Society has been a leader in is the insulin affordability space. So trying to increase insulin affordability. I have colleagues on the Clinical Affairs uh, Committee, the Research Affairs Committee, the Advocacy and Public Outreach Core Committees to have gone to Capitol Hill many times to talk about insulin affordability. And this is a, a critical issue that is a policy issue that we could address that would have drastic impacts for those that uh, live with diabetes. And so another of the core activities over the last five years from the advocacy perspective for the society has been research funding. So we've all been to Capitol Hill, discussed research funding, and we see right now why that's so important. We need excellent research during all times but particularly during these times when we are struggling to battle this COVID-19 pandemic. What is it that patients can do? What's their role in all of this? All patients are people, right? And I think that sometimes we lose sight of that. All individuals have families and lives, and they are people first. So one of the things that you know, I always talk about with the people that I see in clinic is to take advantage of opportunities to engage in health-promoting behaviors. So I'll give an example of that because I, I like examples. The Diabetes Prevention Program 
is a critical program for our country. We have over 86 million Americans with prediabetes. And most of you know, but for those of you who don't, the Diabetes Prevention Program is a lifestyle program focused on physical activity, diet, and weight loss that drastically reduces the transition from prediabetes to diabetes. It's been validated in many sites uh, and sectors throughout the United States. It has a national backing now through the National Diabetes Prevention Program, as well as through YMCA partnerships in local communities. And it's covered by many insurance providers, uh, employers, as well as Medicare. And we know the Medicare population is particularly important because one out of four individuals over the age of 65 has diabetes. So we really need to stop the progression of diabetes in those who are over the age of 65. But what is sad is only 2% of individuals with prediabetes have enrolled in a diabetes prevention program. Uh, I remember, you know, I was sending a, an email out earlier this year, updating some of my colleagues on this, and I was somewhat facetious. I said, the rates of those individuals participating in a program has doubled from 1% to 2%. But it shows that we have to have individuals take advantage of the opportunities to engage in these health-promoting behaviors. The big but here is that for us in healthcare, we have to focus on education, awareness, and maybe most importantly, eliminating the barriers to allow everyone to have an opportunity to engage in these health-promoting opportunities and behaviors. So in order to do that, we really have to address the social determinants of health. Because if you have a huge barrier, you can't participate in the program, which we know is gonna have broad benefits for a person. So I think we really have to think about on our side, the education, awareness, and addressing barriers piece uh, as endocrinologists. Yeah, and the more we talk about this, I, I hope that everyone who's listening is appreciating just how complex this whole issue is. You know, we've been talking about the clinical space, the research space, the public space. But of course, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this are endocrinologists, and we should talk about the endocrinologist space. You know, is there a role for endocrinologists in community engagement? And should endocrinologists be more involved in the COVID-19 response, both now and in the future, due to this high prevalence of endocrine conditions that we're talking about? The answer to that is yes. Uh, yes, endocrinologists have to be involved. To your point, in the COVID-19 pandemic, the conditions that are being seen in hospitals throughout the country, the leading conditions are really diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, which are three endocrine disorders. And so we have to be involved. And so I'd like to use an example of how an endocrinologist can be involved in these efforts. At the OSU Wexner Medical Center, we have an initiative to distribute community care kits to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in Columbus, Ohio. And we really know that we have to address this need to get the individuals in communities isolation grade mask or face coverings so that they can go out into the community when they need to, hand soap so they can wash their hands for 20 seconds, what they say, happy birthday two times, right? So individuals <laughs> That's can what wash I've heard. Their hands. Hand sanitizers so that if we're not near a sink, we can still sanitize our hands. And toothbrushes and toothpaste because look, oral health is just as important too. You know, our oral health is critical to our overall health. 
And so what we did in a really broad-based effort, and I'll go through some of the partners that made this happen, was that we went out into communities throughout central Ohio, what we like to call communities made vulnerable. So these aren't vulnerable communities. They're made vulnerable through some circumstance. So these communities that were made vulnerable and distributed over 40,000 masks in the community, over 20,000 hand sanitizers and soaps, floss, toothbrush, toothpaste. And it was a great drive. I mean, we were out five days in the community, about seven hours per day. And it was just excellent to engage with community members, provide the resources to those community members. We had support from throughout our whole OSU Wexner Medical Center, and I'll talk about that here in a second, but also from leaders throughout our communities. So we had the Commissioner of Public Health for Columbus, Dr. Mashika Roberts. We had Joe Mazzola, the Franklin County Public Health Commissioner. We had our Congresswoman, Joyce Beatty, uh, joined us, as well as our mayor joined in for distributing the kits. So it was really a broad-based effort. And when we think about what made this project successful, one of the first cornerstones was identifying the communities that we went out into and distributed the kits. And endocrinologists were pivotal in that process. So let me talk a little bit about some of the collaborative partnerships that were integral as part of this partnership. So one was the Healthy Communities Initiative. It is led by Dr. Daryl Gray, where we have an ongoing initiative at Ohio State to build and support healthy communities throughout Central Ohio and throughout Ohio, because we are a land-grant institution in the state of Ohio. We had a COVID-19 and health inequity town hall where we discuss what we have learned and where do we go from here. This was led by Dr. Nwando Oliwala. Uh, she is the chair of family medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And there were many leading experts on this town hall, but the expertise really spanned from having the director of health equity for the Ohio Department of Health, Chip Allen. Uh, we had Quinn Capers, who I talked about earlier with implicit bias and the importance of diversity uh, in the workforce. We had Autumn Glover, who leads a lot of our government affairs efforts and is also the director of the Partnership Achieving Community Transformation Together. So she's really great with the community piece uh, and the bringing individuals together around the response. We had Dr. Daryl Gray, who I mentioned earlier, as well as uh, Dr. Leon McDougall, who is the Chief Diversity Officer for the OSU Wexner Medical Center. And then one more partner, Dr. Mark Rastetter, who is the Vice Chair for Community Health in the Department of Family Medicine. And so along all these individuals showed different aspects of the response to health inequities during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's an excellent way to take just, it takes about 30 minutes for that podcast, but it's excellent to kind of go through that because you get to see what are some of those necessary components are. Our Community Engagement Advisory Board through our CCTS joined in on an effort we had population health researchers here at OSU WMC who study disparities in vulnerable populations. And our research group that works with the Ohio Department of Health, Chip Allen, we were able to use a census tract and zip code level data to determine again where those most vulnerable communities were. Mm -hmm. um, and we use things including the Economic Opportunity Index 
which was developed at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, the Health Opportunity Index, as well as something we call the Convergence Index, which looks at where do health conditions come together at their highest levels. So where are the highest levels of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, asthma, heart disease, et cetera? And then we complemented that with the CDC Social Vulnerability Index, which is a index that really looks at how someone can respond to an event such as a pandemic. And so we put all four of those things together. And when we did that, what was interesting is that those really overlaid well and intersected well with where COVID-19 was at their highest rates. So we knew we were hitting the areas that not only had the highest rates of COVID-19, but also had economic and health inequalities. So really trying to think about how we bring all that together. And I would just say without having an endocrinologist on board who understands some of the disparities in health equity and these underlying endocrine conditions, that may not have happened. And so our community engagement boards uh, and many members of the OSUWMC had already built trusted relationships in the community over a number of years. These community partners included large corporations that everyone knows, including L Brands or Limited Brands, the parent corporation of Bath and Body Works, government organizations, including Columbus Public Health, Franklin County Public Health, and Columbus City Schools, and then community organizations, including the African American Male Wellness Initiative and the YMCA. And these partnerships really formed the foundations of the materials that were given out, including the soaps and dental supplies, et cetera. For instance, the L Brands donated all the soap that we gave out, you know, and these were six ounce soaps that individuals could take home and use. We also had broad collaboration with the uh, medical students and undergraduate organizations, as well as the African-American Male Wellness Initiative. They distributed these kits. So they were in a warehouse, social distance, Mm -hmm. you know, sanitizer, everything that we know we need to do but they were able to assemble this massive number of kits. You know, you're talking about 40,000 masks. This isn't 400 masks. So this was definitely a huge operation uh, and they were pivotal in that. One question that may come up is that you guys were able to give out masks. I want to note that these were non-clinical isolation masks and that we had the ability to do that based on some of our T0 to T3 research because we had been working with Battelle on a process to disinfect N95 masks. And so at our hospital, we actually are able to recycle our N95 masks through this disinfection process. That led to having enough of these non-clinical isolation grade masks to pass out in our community-based effort. And without that effort, we may not have had the mask in order to do that. So our basic and translational researchers were definitely helpful in this effort as well. And two last pieces. Harkening back to one of my earlier points, we have a diverse organization that's willing to embrace new challenges in novel ways with leaders who understand the value add of improving community health and really addressing and attacking health disparities in order to advance health equity. And it would not have been possible without this excellent collaborative effort. And so what I would say is it is critical for endocrinologists to lead and be active members of efforts to advance community engagement and care, as no one understands the disorders that are disproportionately impacting underserved, under-resourced, as well as vulnerable communities 
including diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, better than endocrinologists. In these times, these three disorders are the most prevalent conditions among hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and obesity is the leading risk factor for requiring mechanical ventilation in those hospitalized under the age of 65. Thus, you know, my opinion is that the time is now to join efforts to improve the care of people and populations during COVID-19, and maybe even more importantly, into the future. I so appreciate this example also that you're giving us. It's one thing to talk about reducing health disparities, but to give an example of how it can be done, how it's working, hopefully is inspiring to others who are, are listening and are thinking about what can we do to make a difference. There, there is something you can do. People are doing something, but I think you're also making it clear that it requires a lot of investment. It requires a, a specific vision in front of it, and it requires partnerships and good collaboration. So Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Joseph. This was a fascinating conversation, and I hope that you who are listening really enjoyed this. Uh, We mentioned a lot of different resources, so if you want to find links to those, just look in the description for this podcast episode on endocrine.org slash podcast, and we'll have those there. So thanks for spending this time with us today, Dr. Joseph. Is there anything that we should have covered or mentioned that we did not The last thing I would like to say is a a huge thank you to one of my mentors in the Endocrine Society, Dr. Sharita Hill-Golden. She's been a mentor of mine for many years and important to this conversation in 2012, wrote a scientific statement on the health disparities in endocrine disorders, biological, clinical, and non-clinical factors. And we will point everyone towards that because it is just as relevant today uh, as it was in 2012. Dr. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for the invitation and allowing me to engage uh, with Endocrine Society members, uh, as well as all those who have the opportunity to be Endocrine Society members. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, we covered a lot. So be sure to check out the episode description on endocrine.org slash podcast for links to some of the resources we discussed. We'd love to hear from you. So if there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, be sure to email us at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.